you know, with the formality of the jacket, I yeah. think I like we need the bow tie. The bow tie. I, yeah. I like. I was at a wedding outfitters being fitted for a rental tux. But the velvet is yeah. just nice and dressy. And okay. I'd been invited to a gala for Columbus's Preservation Society. The president, Ralph Null, had me over for Thanksgiving with his husband Fred a few days before and suggested I join the event. And before I knew it, I was walking up the driveway to an elegant house in the woods just outside town. Lit up like a film set, the building announced itself proudly, a dazzling white pearl shimmering in the night. Guests milled around on a wide porch as drinks were served under a canopy on the front lawn and a band serenaded the partygoers. After fetching myself a bourbon, how could I drink anything else in these surroundings? I hunted down Ralph to ask what the gala was all about. The whole reason for tonight is to really promote historic preservation. Because in small town America, if you don't preserve houses, then you lose communities. We're dealing with a lot of issues, but this is an example of what you can do if you just ignore the issues. Well, I will see you in a little bit. I didn't press him on the issues, but I'd heard there'd been a split in attitudes towards the town's historic homes, and we made plans to sit down for an interview later that week. I'm going to say you're from Aylesbury. I found myself chatting with a woman called Laura Beth, and before long she was teaching me the local dialect. Okay, so fun has two syllables. Fun has two syllables. Fun. Fun. But link them together. Fun. Fun. There you go! It was like a Mississippi remake of My Fair Lady. And if there was any doubt I had finagled my way up Columbus's social ladder, I found myself being introduced to the mayor, Keith Gaskin. Nice to meet you. Emily told me you were in town. Yes, yes. Yes. I'd love to visit with you. Remind me what brought you here. Keith invited me to City Hall for an interview, but that's a conversation for another episode. First up was my chat with Ralph, and a few days later we sat down to record our interview. Not only is he president of the Preservation Society, but he also had an illustrious career in floral design, including multiple events at the White House. His home office is lined with framed thank you letters from Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Jimmy Carter's wife. Ralph uses the expression post-war a few times. I normally associate that with World War II, but in this context, he's talking about the American Civil War. I began by asking him why he was so quick to invite me into his home for Thanksgiving. Is that Southern hospitality or is that just you? Well, I think it's probably both, actually. And sometimes you glean so much more from the stranger than you would have gleaned from having someone you already know because you broaden your ideas and thoughts and creates a whole new opportunity to explore and understand. I wanted to discuss your work with the Preservation Society. You're the president. Uh, By default. (laughs) Firstly, just set the context. What kind of architecture is Columbus known for? Traditionally, Columbus has been known for its antebellum houses that are marvelous pre-Civil War structures. Antebellum means prior to the rebellion. And because they tended to be large, lavish homes of the plantation owners, they were far and above the other structures in the town. And and I'm just going to jump in. So many of the houses are here because Columbus was spared during the Civil War. Yes, absolutely. We were a hospital town. 
So this allowed us to have, unlike many of the towns that were burned to the ground, we have these really great structures and Two or three of them are listed on the National Historic Register. I'd heard that some homes in the past hang the divisive Confederate flag. They do, and there are some homes that still do that. And, I mean, there's an argument to be made that if we're trying to show the house as it was when it was occupied by the plantation owner and his wife, they would have been flying the Confederate flag. However, they wouldn't have been because before the war, there was not a Confederate flag. Right. And the Confederate flag became really a symbol of rebellion against the occupying Northern troops from the war of Northern aggression. So it's kind of like tongue in cheek if they say we're just flying the Confederate flag because it's a Confederate flag. It's the symbol that came from the war to symbolize the Confederacy. There was a Mississippi flag during the Civil War. And some want to wear their real Confederate uniform and snap their swords and wear their antebellum dresses. But if they want to do it so authentically, why don't they have all of the house staff waiting on everybody? You know, so are we only wanting to show the good side of the picture, not the whole picture? Right. You know, that's really where we are. And I think we may be almost at the last generation of that. Mm. So a few years ago, the Preservation Society was formed to help the long-term stabilization of architecturally significant structures and neighborhoods in Columbus. Post-war, there were some wealthy merchants here still, uh, some were carpetbaggers, and explain what is a carpetbagger. Carpetbagger was a term applied to a northern businessman who moved south with his bag made of carpet and would move to take advantage of the opportunities in the south. Okay. They were kind of looked on by the southerners as scoundrels, but they looked on themselves as entrepreneurs. It's one of my favorite new words I've learned here is carpetbagger. Carpetbagger, yeah. So then you had post-war, you had the occupation and so forth, but we still had growth and development. So the American Institute of Architects in its evaluation of Columbus listed as one of the most diverse architectural styles of any small town of its size. We have, you know, mid-century modern, we have continental, we have Victorian, we have Georgian, we have colonial cottage, we have northern colonial, we have all these things in a, in a real mixed bag. I don't want to stir things up, but I did read there had been a slight split in the attitude towards historic homes and preservation there's and the pilgrimage. Group, there's a group of people who own the uh, pre-Civil War homes who are very proud of what they have. And they, I think, unfortunately, have taken the attitude that by lifting other homes up, we are denigrating the value of their homes. And when you say value, do you mean historic value or financial value or both? Mental value. Mental value. You know. My home is better than your home. My home is too good to be placed in the same group as those homes. My home is historic. That house has no historic value. But if the antebellum structure is surrounded by deteriorating architectural structures post 
war, it diminishes the value of the house that you are trying to preserve. And see, I think there's so much short-sightedness in not seeing this as a fabric of a neighborhood that whatever we have, it's just like the body, the heart can be great. But if you cut the arm off, you can pump all the blood out of it. It's the whole thing dies. So it's all part of the whole. The fabric of the whole is what makes us what we are. And we have to nurture that and understand that. And it doesn't matter where you are, who you are, black or white, rich or poor, you want to live where you feel safe. You said that you'd had a very humble upbringing. Is that fair to say? I did. I grew up about 100 miles south of Columbus, out in the county. Uh, I was born into a house without indoor plumbing. And, of course, I was the first one in my family to actually go away to college. And what did you study? I went to Mississippi State and studied horticulture because my real love was in floriculture, floralizon, flowers, and so forth. And I don't know why, but maybe it was because my father was a very sort of macho man and raced horses and broke horses. And my sister loved to ride horses with my father. I despised it. I'd rather be with my mother in the garden, uh, in the yard doing things. So it was kind of my alternative to what I was expected to do. Mm, your way of rebelling. Maybe. And how did you find your path into a career in... Well, it was interesting because I was able to get into a program that you went to school a semester and worked a semester. And when I graduated, the person that had been teaching this floral design course on campus uh, resigned. I was the lowest hanging fruit available. And... Uh, I stayed there for 25 years and retired as a full professor. So I was lucky. Because you've had a very illustrious horticultural and floral design career. Is that running alongside when you were teaching or did it that did. come after? It did. And there's a certain credibility to being at the university that opens doors for you. So it gave me the opportunity to do a lot of things. I was apparently the first American to appear on a kabuki stage in a formal kimono with about four minions on the floor who scurried around like mice as I threw stems and leaves and branches completely across the stage and ended with the last plunge of flowers into the heart of the design. Did you ever have a sense of pain that when you put all of this effort and creative thought into a floral arrangement, something that is so fleeting that only lasts for a few weeks or even a few days, Absolutely not. The real rush comes from the creative process. But the beauty of floral design, it is not static. It is constantly changing. And the flowers may be lovely when you make the piece, but three days later when the roses are twice as big or the peonies have opened, it's a whole different expression. Even to the point when they start to lose their petals, that's also an expression. When you were diagnosed with cancer, that's when you embraced painting more seriously? It was, yes. I had dabbled a bit in the previous years, but during that recovery period, it was a good sense of discipline for me and a removal of thought for myself. Because I was wondering whether embracing painting in a way was you trying to find more permanence by committing to a canvas in your creative expression in a way that maybe you couldn't with floral design. Well, that's interesting. I never really thought of that. I just think that 
I've done so many thousands of arrangements with almost every kind of flower that could be at almost any price point. And I would be totally happy to never make another arrangement. Well, there you go. I mean, I suppose you can sort of reach a limit, can't you? You can have done everything. Well, I don't know that it's, it's certainly not that I feel like I've done everything. I just, you feel the fulfillment of achieving the goal that even I didn't know that I had. To be a small country boy that grew up playing with blocks of wood from my father's construction as my creative toys, uh, to being able to curtsy to the queen when she came to an exhibition that you did. Yeah. What did your dad make of your career? I think he was quietly proud. I mean, I probably was not the macho son that he wanted, but I think he was he was happy that I was successful. He would have probably preferred me to have followed in his footsteps and been a fundamentalist minister. Well, there's still time. <laughs> well, you know, I've often said I probably have preached more than he ever did. It's just that my topic was different, mm. you know. Yeah. It's amazing the opportunity to to do a lot of philosophy and life-giving, life-improving things, even when you're teaching. And maybe that's the reason that we're able to be who we are, where we are. Speaking of being who you are, where you are, yeah, I think a lot of people would be surprised maybe to hear about a openly gay couple in a small town in Mississippi, especially given how long you have been together and been open. Right. If you don't mind chatting about that. Well, it's interesting. Uh, it wasn't something I set out to do, you know. I really was sort of late coming out, so to speak, because I came from such a sort of uh, sheltered upbringing. Although I could say, which I only shared with a few people, that uh, it was in that 10-year-old that I was sexually molested in the church closet by a church leader of this very conservative group of people, God, which I carried with me for lots of years. So, did you tell your parents? I know, never told anyone. Really? Yeah. And the the person that did it, you did they? They never faced any repercussions. No, they didn't. God, but you know, it's one of those things that. I have to probably qualify this. It was one of those things that you carry because it was a huge thing of guilt. But the fact that I was gay, it opened doors for me that I might not have pushed open even later. Like I said, I really haven't. There are very few people who know that. My family never knew that. But um, it's part of what you are. You know, you are the sum total of all of your experiences, small or large. And sometimes a five-minute segment of your whole lifespan is much more influential than five minutes. So I, you know, dealt with that. And so I was actually finished college and uh, was actually teaching. I was at MSU, and there was a florist over here who had, um, she was a widow. She and her daughter ran the shop, and they had lots of gay friends. I came and worked for her a little bit and met her friends, and that really opened the door that there was 
it was something that some people very carefully embraced. We're talking in the 70s. And then after that, I won the Mississippi Designer of the Year florist design competition and went to Miami to represent the Southeastern Regional Competition. And it was at that convention that I met Fred and apparently he saw something in me that, I mean, I was totally oblivious to. And uh, we moved in together in October of 1971. Our philosophy has always been, it's really hard for people that know you and love you for other things to hate you because of one thing. So we were very prone to entertain. We got to know lots of people. But that sort of openness of a gay relationship was still sort of very behind the scenes. Fred would go home with me for lunch on a Sunday or whatever. He was never recognized as my partner. My mother always called him her other son, and she loved Fred. And my father was always sort of ambivalent you know, and kind of distant and whatever. But it just one of those things evolved over the years. And then we were involved in so many different things and organizations and supported stuff and worked for stuff and were visible both singularly and together until sort of the awareness became and it was kind of like, so what? Mm. So I think you change people one person at a time and you change people by being a service to them, whether they ask you to or not. So if you had just moved into town last month, you and Fred, and you weren't involved in all these organizations and you weren't giving, do you think you would face more resistance or more prejudice? I don't think so, because I think you'd be less known. Okay. And we have friends that are gay that are involved in almost nothing. Hmm. There really is any pushback. I've never really felt fearful of uh, anyone other than my roommate in this 1971 when I told him that Fred was moving in, who threw me against the wall. But other than that, really? I'm a lover, not a fighter. Mm. However, we've been on the front page of the commercial dispatch uh, Speaking our piece on the Mississippi legislature's 1493. 1523? 1523, Well, I wanted to ask you about it. So tell me about House Bill 1523. What is that? The Mississippi legislature is one of those laws that's thought up by a conservative think tank. And that simply said that uh, the Religious Freedom Act meant that anybody can discriminate against gays if they want to. It's legal. You can't see them. It's okay. And has that played out in any way? It hasn't really affected us. It's just that I think it sets the wrong tone. Like our local senator, who one of the couples that are here last night called him up and read him the riot act for being one of the people that voted for it. And so he ended up eventually calling. And we talked for about an hour. And basically at the end, I summarized what I'd said. I said, look, you just told me that this was legislation that was brought in from out of state who put the money behind it and that you voted for it. So you're selling it. You're selling your vote to the highest bidder. That's what we call whores on the street. You're a political whore in my book. Thank you very much. I've said all I need to say and I hung up. This is the senator. Yeah. 
He doesn't like to walk straight up to me, and I see him frequently, but he usually goes the other side of the room. Because when you were on the front cover of the paper, that was six years ago, you said that you thought it would be struck down. Right. Do you still think that? It was really more of a feel-good thing that was done. I've heard very few instances where it has been used. It was just a real good way to scratch the back of radical conservatives who are so appalled with everything until they find their son or daughter is gay. Sometimes you just have to make a stand. And right now is a difficult time in that respect because there is this big controversy going on right now about gay rights in the Methodist Church. And there's a group that made a big presentation in front of a whole group of people. And not one person stood up to contradict them or to address the other side. I was on church council and actually chairman of the trustees at the time. And I went that week and resigned from all my positions simply as a matter of principle. And I know that the whole church does not feel that way, but if not one person in that church council stood up and spoke in defense, I had to make a stand because that would be more telling to those who felt that way, that look look what we're doing. It's painful, but at the same time, if you don't stand up for something, you don't stand up for anything. Mm. Did you ever consider moving somewhere more progressive or will this always be home? You know, we talked about that a lot because once I retired from the university, which was, you know, a long time ago, 30 years ago, we had planned to move down to the coast of Florida. We, we kind of discussed this, that, you know, we both have a place here. We can go wherever we want to go. And as you said, why do you stay in Columbus? And we always said, we're doing missionary work. You change one heart and mind at the time. And if we can influence one person who has a gay child to see them differently, then it's all been worth it. There are three couples that are married in the area that met in our kitchen. We get together on Tuesday night for dinner, and sometimes there's four, and sometimes there's 14. And I think the fact that all the guys tip well, you know, sometimes you can influence staff in a restaurant by simply being good tippers. That's a very American attitude towards uh, changing your way. Yes. <laughs> Money talks. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So we've been together for 51 years. And married for? Oh, I can never remember. Five or six or wow. seven. We mailed out notices to 150 people. And I think all 150 came. And the only complaint we had was the other 150 that didn't get invited. Hey, Mother Goose. Yes. Very What's going nice. on? Thought I would come and say hello. <laughs> well, come in. I'm so it had been a busy week and I was popping in on Mother Goose to share my exciting news about the gala and my invitation by the mayor to visit him at City Hall. I think you're mighty brave and smart. You are inquisitive in your knowledge of learning what's going on around Columbus. So, and that's what you have to be. And uh, you've been invited to a lot of places. <laughs> yeah, what was the expression you used? High cotton? Oh, oh, yes, that's right. Now, if you go back and you are invited to visit with the king and the queen, 
you are in high cotton. <laughs> That's just an expression of mine. I think it's an old Southern expression. I could have said like that, high cotton. You're in high cotton. That high means cotton. that's high, high cotton. High cotton. Good, you got it. <laughs> Off the Beaten Jack is produced and presented by me, Jack Boswell. Thank you to my guest this week, Ralph Null, along with Laura Beth and Mother Goose for the elocution lessons. I had fun. Sorry, fun. Theme music by Simon Boswell. If you're enjoying the series, please rate, review and subscribe. It makes a big difference. Thanks for listening. 